In 2015, Caitlin McNeil posted a picture on Facebook, and that picture would receive around 20 likes until it went viral and became a worldwide debate. You could not escape talking about this photo at school, at work, in the grocery aisle. Battle lines were drawn and there was no conceding. This very simple picture that started with 20 likes would end up with more than 10 million tweets, causing confusion and arguments along the way. So what was this global dispute all about? This picture. This picture. Maybe you're remembering this now back from 2015. In fact, quick poll, how many of you look at this picture and see a white and gold dress? Okay. How many of you see a black and blue dress? All right, about 50-50 for those online, and therein lies the controversy. (laughs) By the way, for those of you wondering, the answer is yes, it's a black and blue dress. (laughs) 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 Applause, okay. Uh, the point is, we have a propensity to disagree or to be right, and it's not limited to debating dress colors. It's DC versus Marvel, it's iPhone versus Android, it's Huskies versus Cougars, it's pumpkin spice latte in August, too soon, not soon enough. <laughs> it's, it's toilet paper, over, under, I mean, the controversies are everywhere. And that's just the easy stuff. In today's culture, it's not just Republicans and Democrats, conservatives and liberals. Now it's the 1% versus the 99, climate doubters versus climate protectors, masks versus no masks, vax versus no vax. Our borders have become battle lines. And just as a quick Reality check, we are 16 months away from our very first primary of the next presidential election. We live in a world that is fractured by argument, hatred, and bitterness, and conflict and opposition are our new normal. A study conducted by the nonpartisan Pew Research Organization found that America's divisions are deeper today than ever before. In fact, Time Magazine said this, there is no advanced industrial democracy in the world more politically divided or dysfunctional than the United States of America. Pastor Andy Stanley would say this, disagreement is inevitable, division is a choice. And what we'll see in today's scripture is that Jesus and Paul agree. As we near the end of Paul's letter to the Colossians, he takes aim at a topic both spiritually important but culturally relevant. He says, in order to maintain the longevity and the integrity of the church then and now, we must be willing to engage in relationships in and outside our home. And so as we pick up Paul's letter in chapter three, Paul begins with the first of two callings for believers. The first is this, that we are called to have healthy relationships with others. We're called to have healthy relationships with other people. And this is far more than just playing nice in the playground. Because the reality is, until Jesus returns, we are stuck with people. 
the people we love and the people we like and the people we tolerate and the people that are a challenge for us. We're stuck with people. But that doesn't mean we're called to love or have to agree with their point of view. I love what Boyd Bailey says on this. He says, when we agree to disagree, we honor the relationship above trying to change the people. We're more interested in the people than changing the people's mind. So instead, we are called to practice agreed disagreements. Agreed disagreements. Now, agreed disagreements are not about giving in. It's not about working tirelessly to change someone's opinion. Agreed disagreements are not for when you've reached exhaustion or stalled out on evidence to prove your point. Agreed disagreements are not to insult or take the other person down, and especially not when you're at the breaking point of your relationship or to be right or righteous. But really, it's simply to agree to disagree, to acknowledge that God, in his incredible creativity, created us to be uniquely individual. And the sooner we can get there, the better. And this is the idea we pick up with when we read Paul's letter. He says this in Colossians 3.15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful. In scripture, there are some varied forms of peace that God offers to his people. Peace up, peace in, and peace out. So peace up. We know that sin separated us from God and that Jesus would intervene and reconcile and restore us to him. This incredible peace that's accomplished only through a faith in Jesus and his work on the cross. Then there's peace in. This is that peace that passes all understanding kind of peace. This is that peace that's found in a trusted relationship with Jesus. This is the kind of peace that gives you confidence that God's in control, that he has got this. Peace up, peace in, peace out. Peace out, this is that communal peace with others that it was exampled so well by Jesus so that we can have relationship with other people outside the church. And this is the peace that Paul's referring to found exclusively in Christ, and therefore, to let the peace of Christ rule your heart, you must have the peace of Christ in your heart. To let it, you have to have it. I mean, in order to activate something, you must have it first. In order to get into my car, I have to have the key fob. My car could be sitting there and full of gas and, and ready to drive home, but if I don't have the one thing that will activate it, I can't drive it. And the same is true here. In order to allow the peace of Christ to rule in your heart and affect your life and your words and your actions, you got to have it. You got to have the peace of Christ in your heart. You can't activate something that's not there. Couple of quick, really quick notes. One is it's important to note that the peace of Christ is more than just a ceasefire. We don't get to rub the gospel lamp and have the peace of Christ appear like a genie and remedy a disagreement. The peace of Christ is not a truce and it's not a timeout. 
It's a way of life. It's a natural outflow for those who possess and activate and lean into the peace of Christ in their life. And two, the peace of Christ has the final ruling. Paul's use of the word rule here is our word for a ruling uh, by an umpire or, or a referee, uh, an official. We're called to let the peace of Christ hold a high authority and have the final ruling or say. Now, allowing this peace to rule in your heart does not mean you have to be passive or minimize or overlook sin or, or avoid hard issues or conversation. In fact, I would offer it's very much the opposite. Because you have the peace of Christ ruling in your heart, you can step into hard conversations. You can confront sin. You can stand for truth. And that is especially critical to remember when we adopt the mindset that we are not in it to win it. We're not in this to win anything. I mean, think about the Super Bowl or the World Series or the Stanley Cup or March Madness or the Oscars or the Emmys or the Grammys. It's all about one thing, winning. In, in sports, winning is the name of the game. Nobody plays to tie. But this week, two little leaguers reminded the world that winning isn't everything. Perhaps you saw this story on the news or your news feed, and, and I myself have watched it several times. Little League Southwest Regional Championship happened this week in Waco, Texas. And, and it's not about who won or lost the game. It's a moment between Caden Shelton and Isaiah Jarvis. Right-handed pitcher Caden Shelton of Perlin, Texas, was on the mound uh, throwing pitches to batter Isaiah Jarvis of Tulsa, Oklahoma. The count was 0-2, and a pitch got away from Caden, ended up clocking Isaiah on the left side of his helmet, and Isaiah went down quick. And soon, coaches are out rushing to check on Isaiah. He brushes himself off, everything's okay, and he makes his way to first base. But as you're watching this unfold and the commentators are talking about how Isaiah is standing there and first just deadlocked looking at the pitcher's mound. And what happens next is he drops his batting helmet on the ground and beelines for the pitcher's mound where he finds Caden. Body language indicates he's down, shoulders rolled, his hat is pulled way down. And Isaiah comes up and embraces him. I think we have a picture of this moment. And here's what's really cool. They weren't wearing microphones, but you can hear part of what he says. Isaiah walks up and says, hey man, you're doing great. Let's go. I'm doing fine. Let's play the game. Later on in an interview, when asked why he did this, he said, I wanted to go there and spread God's love and make sure that he was okay, and let him know that I was okay. Caden, the pitcher, would say, I felt cared for. He cared about me, I cared about him, and suddenly it wasn't about baseball. We instantly had a friendship relationship. 
Paul may have made an athletic reference here, but our relationships are not about winners or losers. If peace is at work in us, there is no scoreboard. Paul understood this fact because he had a personal experience with a moment like this. In preparation for travel, Paul and Barnabas would have a very sharp disagreement about a young Mark joining them on a missionary journey. It's a sharp disagreement. Read it on your own. But because they were ruled by the peace of Christ and they weren't doing mission work to win, they were able to value the kingdom and relationship first to carry out the Lord's work separately. And they didn't discredit or dishonor each other along the way. So who, who won? Well, the kingdom won because the gospel was shared. The peace of Christ won because it had the final rule. And I would offer their relationship won. They recognized they together were members of one body. Church, we gotta get this right. John 13, 35 would say, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. A little later on in the New Testament, 1 John 4, 20 offers a warning. If someone says, I love God, but hates a fellow believer, that person's a liar. For if we don't love people we can see, how can we love God whom we cannot see? We are called to engage in the relational messiness around us. We are called to be compassionate, not combative. Loving our neighbor means respecting the individual, even if we don't agree with their behavior or opinion. You know, even before, but certainly since the fallout of the pandemic, many outside the church perceive that the church has solidified its reputation as division, disunity. And I would say it's up to us, church, to change that. Because people still seeking peace. People are still seeking hope. People are still seeking for what's missing in their lives. And we know that Jesus is the only means of true peace. But does our witness serve as that example? Do we have a welcoming invitation? As the church, we can lead the way. We can be the bright beacon on the hill. But let us be weary of saying we love people and value relationships in here, but then act differently and post on social media differently out there. When Paul writes, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since you are members of one body, you were called to peace. Let us be mindful that church unity and relationships are at stake. Let's be a church that's for one another. Let's have relationships that are rooted and respectful. And let's be confident that the church, the church is a place that is welcome for others to hear about the goodness of the gospel because it matters. All right, that was, that's the first verse. So he moves on. He says this in 316. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. 
Now, Paul has laid the groundwork, the baseline for our relationships with the peace of Christ. And now he's saying in those relationships, I've told you about relationships. Now, in those relationships, he points out the importance of the message of Christ. Now, notice what Paul is not saying. He's not saying use the gospel as often as you want to thwart others to an understanding of what's right and wrong and do it all in my name. Paul's actually encouraging, again, that nurturing of relationships. He's encouraging the message of the gospel dwell or be active or be the center of relationships. He says richly or abundantly as we admonish or encourage one another in wisdom. The Greek New Testament word here for encouragement is all about building up or edifying, promoting others' spiritual growth. And Paul makes a nod to both the Old and New Testament, calling us to spur one another on through wisdom found in psalms and hymns and songs. To borrow Paul's writing to the Thessalonian church, he would say, encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you're doing. The Thessalonians were pros at this. He's saying, keep on keeping on with encouraging others. To the Ephesian church, he would say this about the same idea. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only that that is helpful of building others up according to their needs. Now, let's not overthink this. We can all be encouragers. It's more than a thumbs up or a fist bump down the hallway. Encouragement is simply building others up as you've been gifted. So the how is up to you. Maybe you're a phone call person. Maybe you're a text person or an email person or a handwritten card person or a let's meet up for coffee person or an after church, I want to let you know I've been thinking about you person. However it is that you can add value to someone else, that's how we encourage others and build each other up. Josh Harris says this, every relationship for a Christian is an opportunity to love another person like God has loved us. So in your relationships, richly or abundantly and often build others up. Paul concludes this portion by saying this, and whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, you may remember back to verse 15, he ends that sentence with be thankful. In verse 16, he ends with be grateful. And then here for the third time, he says, in whatever you do, give thanks. And one could ask, thanks for what? You could be thankful for the relationships that he has surrounded you with, your circle of influence, your tribe, those that you can go to. Be thankful for the opportunities that he's entrusted to you to be a light to those around you. We can be grateful that God called us into his family and that we have a belonging to him. We can be thankful for the peace of Christ. We can be thankful for that ruling of the peace of Christ in our hearts. 
Guys, we can't take for granted the goodness of God and that he has invited us to the party and that through Christ, we have access to an unparalleled peace in our relationships. So may we have a consistent posture of gratefulness with those that we are in relationship with outside. Here, Paul takes a bit of a hard right turn. He continues with this idea of relationships, but he changes his focus from outside now to inside, from relationships with others to relationships more personal. Specifically, we are called to have healthy relationships at home. Healthy relationships with others and now healthy relationships at home. You know, even in the first century, even in these pop-up churches that Paul was launching, men and women needed advice and counsel on how to make marriages and household relationships work. They didn't have the weekend to remember marriage retreat. They didn't have the five love languages to read. They needed instruction. In other words, if you feel like you're not always getting relationships right at home, you're in good company. Neither did the Colossians. Now, fair warning here. The verse we're about to look at may strike your ears wrong, especially in 2022. However, when we read passages within their context and better understand what the author is saying, we can see how it's transformative to our lives and here to our relationships. Read things out of context, we get into trouble. So with that fair warning, Paul begins at home and he says this, wives submit yourselves to your husbands as it's fitting for the Lord. Husbands love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Okay, here we go. In our quick to cancel culture, it could seem like Paul is not coming out of the gate so hot. But these, this is one of those moments where we have to be diligent readers. We have to lean into our maturity and understanding of the Bible to probe a little deeper to better understand what it is Paul's really saying. First, I think it's important to remember, to remind ourselves what Paul thought about women. Paul was a fan. He believed both men and women were equally created in the image of God. To the Galatians, he would write, in Christ, there is no difference or no distinction in value, worth, or importance between a man and a woman. You are all one in Christ. Second, notice Paul is not telling wives to obey their husbands. We'll get to the word obey in just a moment, but here he's, he's asking them to submit. And there is a difference between submit and obey. To obey is to be ruled by someone else, someone else's authority. You got to listen to. Because I said so works when it comes to obey. It's crucial to see that Paul has some word intentionality here. The wife is not a child. She doesn't have to obey. Rather, she is a peer. She's not being called to some blind subjection, but instead a voluntary trust. She places herself into submission. She's not put there by her husband. And third, 
It's important to see the great qualifier that Paul writes. The wife is called to submit as is fitting in the Lord. Ultimately, then, she is placing herself in submission to follow Christ first. For example, if a husband were to ask his wife to follow him in worshiping an idol, she would be correct in not submitting to that request, as that would not be fitting in the Lord. Now, I, I recognize this idea, this verse, potentially could have some baggage, but it doesn't have to. This is a picture of, of me and my wife on our wedding day, June 14th, 2005. Look at how happy and young we looked. Oh, man. Shauna and I have been married for 17 years, and our marriage has been described to us by the three L's, love, laughter, and loudness. Like, you know where we are at all times. Shauna and I are best friends. We are soulmates. We are teammates. We are parents, learners, explorers, and we are committed to Christ and the journey that he has marked out for us. Shauna grew up in Yakima over in eastern Washington. She's the second oldest of four sisters. Her dad was a successful real estate broker and her mom, man, she was the hub of the family. She was the cook and the taxi. She was everywhere at all times. And Margaret raised her girls to be strong and independent women. And so when Shauna entered our marriage, she was a strong and independent woman. And I was a little worried. <laughs> Brian, what's going to happen when you make that first big decision and she's got to submit to it? Well, my worry was ill-placed. Did we nail it every time? No. Did we learn together? Yes. Did we find a rhythm in seeking God in our decision-making? Absolutely. However, if Shauna was here on this stage with me, she would tell you that over the course of our 17 years of marriage, there has been one decision that I made above all others that was the most difficult for her to submit to. One word, Iowa. In 2013, I was offered a job as a morning show host on a Christian radio station in the middle of the state of Iowa. Yeah, like Iowa caucuses, Iowa, like Field of Dreams, Iowa, like Corn Everywhere, Iowa. And yet none of those fascinating facts compelled Shauna to an excitement about moving to the Midwest. But we did. We did. We packed up and we moved from beautiful Bend, Oregon, such a beautiful, ah, oh, the crowd, Bend, Oregon. We left family, we left friends, we left our church, we left our small group and moved to the middle of nowhere. We were Midwesterners for two years until Cornwall rescued us and brought us here. <laughs> now, now, if Shauna were here on stage, she would tell you, it took everything in her to reluctantly eventually submit to our move. She would also tell you that in hindsight, she can see a purpose in the pain of moving. She would tell you that she knows now God was directing me 
us, our family, the entire time. And I, as her husband, had a front row seat of seeing the peace of Christ rule in her heart and her life, coupled with a trust of me leading our family and eventually a willingness to submit or go along with the decision. Now, did a posture of submission come naturally to Shauna? No. Did she have to learn to trust me, her husband? You bet. Was Shauna a robot ready to stamp approval on every decision I made? No, but that would have been really nice. Like, (laughs) Brian, whatever you say, you are so smart and handsome. (laughs) To this day, does Shauna have opinions on decisions that affect her life, our life, our family? Of course. And does Shauna have a voice in decisions made for us in our relationship? Without a doubt. After 17 years and by God's grace, we continue to live in a rhythm that works for us. And for us, it involves prayer and journaling and discussion and more prayer and and counsel and ultimately a decision given to me by Shauna. John Wooden would say, whatever you do in life, surround yourself with smart people who will argue with you. You see, Paul isn't suggesting men marry a yes woman. Paul's not suggesting that wives need to smile and and stand in the corner. In fact, just the opposite. Wives, lean into your faith, connect with Jesus, share your wisdom, share your insight, help your husband as he discerns what's right. As Shauna's husband, I welcome and want to hear her questions. I want to hear her point of view, her insights, and what God is revealing to her about the decision. And ultimately, in the second part of this verse, I want to love her well in the midst of that. At the time Paul was writing, husbands were called to manage their their homes, their households. And that was about all the direction they had because a well-ordered marriage and home was good for reputation in the society. But they weren't called to. They didn't know about an agape kind of love to their wife. Agape love, as we know, is that Christ-centered love, selfless and sacrificial that puts other people first. Husbands, we are called to leadership in our homes and in our marriages. So show up and lead well and love well. We've been called to it and our wives and our families deserve it. And yeah, that means fighting against our selfish default. It means saying yes more than you say no. It means tackling those to-dos that when you get home after a long day of work, all you really want to do is nothing. It means turning off the TV or putting down your phone so you can listen to a probably detailed account of her day. It means intentionally making choices to make your wife feel like the most important person in the room. And let me just say, if, you're, if your marriage is strong, this describes you. You're solid, you're healthy, right on. Stay humble, keep praying. If your marriage is a challenge right now, you are not alone. When I counsel couples in pre-marriage counseling, I remind them, I remind myself, marriage is a relationship between two imperfect people. 
So there will be days when you don't feel like loving, you don't feel like giving, you don't feel like forgiving, you're hurt, you're selfish, you may even feel wronged and need to get revenge. But in those moments, allow Jesus to be the anchor, allow him to be the center, holding you in place as you weather the storm. And so if you're in one of those moments that describes your relationship right now, we have eight incredible pastors that love this church and love you deeply and want your marriage to thrive. And so we would love to connect with you. If you are bold and humble enough to reach out this week, contact the church office and one of us eight would love to connect with you. Paul has two more commands and they're quick. Uh, First thing is here in Bellingham in the room, Skagit online as well. If you are 17 years of age or younger, make a little bit of noise right now. 17 under. Okay, cool. I'll just skip this section then. Um, no. Okay. All right. So for the like three of you, I'll just, I'll just preach to you three real quick. I think there was someone over here, someone over here. Okay. This verse is for you. Here we go. Children, obey your parents in everything. For this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. All right, you three. Did you hear that? Five words, really important. Obey your parents in everything. Kids, we know you think we're old, and we are. We know you think we drive slow, and we do. We know that you're embarrassed that we have TikTok on our phone, and it's true. But we also know things you don't know yet. History gives us a unique vantage point of having been where you are and where you want to go. We parents don't tell you no because it's fun. We tell you no because we've landed on the other side and we have wisdom to share. So kids, help us out. Give us that yes. Resist the temptation to roll your eyes. And know that your compliance is welcomed by your parents and it is, more importantly, pleasing to the Lord. It's true. Your yes to loading the dishwasher is honoring to mom and dad and pleasing to the Lord. Your yes to cleaning your room is honoring to your parents and pleasing to the Lord. Your yes to being home by curfew is pleasing to the Lord and really good for mom and dad. (laughs) And parents, let's lead and guide and discipline our kids with great intention. And fellow dads out there, Paul knows us. God knows us. He has a really specific call out for us. To quote the great theologian rapper Ice Cube, check yourself before you wreck yourself. All right, guys? Husbands, dads, parent with wisdom, not out of unchecked temper or immaturity. Watch how we parent our kids, dads. Finally, this, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as if working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Now, I love these verses. These verses are a great true north reminder of how it is and why it is we serve in the body of Christ. And they are often quoted at church to rally a team of volunteers, right? Like, 
Whatever you do, whether it's work with kids or pour coffee or park cars or play dodgeball, yeah, do with all your heart. And that's true and that's great. But again, we go to the context. And in the context here, Paul is saying that in relationship to relationships with others. As if to say, guys, in light of all I've said so far, whatever you choose to do in relation to relationships and conflict and disagreements and marriage and parenting, whatever you decide to do about that, do it wholeheartedly. Because we know to maintain relationships, it's work. It takes our wholehearted effort. We know it's worth the work. And Christ is right there to help us along. In all your relationships, place him at the center. So this week, as you think about your relationships, the people you'll encounter, put Jesus at the center with your wife, your husband, your kids, your coworkers, your classmates, your teammates, because with Jesus at the center, you will find peace in those relationships. Jesus cares about our most important relationships. Why? Because he cares about us. Jesus is, is all about us. And so he cares about the people he's placed around us. And so by God's grace, we can have agreed disagreements. We can work hard at our marriage. We can parent intentionally, all without having to have division and disunity and damage to the relationships that God has gifted us. So to end where we began, since we are members of one body called out and called up to peace, then therefore... Let us, let the peace of Christ rule us in our hearts and then watch the outflow into relationships with others.